Turn in your Bible, please, to Revelation, the fourth chapter. Revelation chapter 4. <clears throat> it's a joy to see uh, many of you here tonight. As we continue the study of the book of Revelation. Some of what we say tonight will be by way of review because it's extremely important that we have in our mind what God is trying to say to us through the narratives of the book of Revelation. And I have prayed that God would guard my steps from and my lips and tongue from presumptuous statements because we all must sit at the feet of the Holy Spirit. He is our teacher. He is our director. And he's the author of Scripture. He's the interpreter of Scripture. It's my prayer tonight that the Holy Spirit would take God's Word and make it alive to us and give us heaven's understanding of what must shortly come to pass in this earth. May we pray together. Father, again, we recognize that we're nothing and are everything, and our flesh dwelleth no good thing. But we thank thee that thou hast made us accepted in the beloved through the blood of Jesus that cleanses from all sin. We pray that tonight thou wilt open our hearts, our ears, our minds, that we might be sharpened by the Holy Spirit to understand the things which must shortly come to pass. Give us wisdom. And above everything, may thy Holy Spirit Give us the warning of God's word as to what believers are to expect as we approach the end of the age. May those who are without Jesus be convicted by the Holy Spirit. And everyone who is saved rejoice in thee. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read the fourth chapter of Revelation tonight. There are only 11 verses. After this I looked and beheld, behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice that I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up here, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper, and a sardis stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like an emerald. And around about the throne were four and twenty thrones. And upon the thrones I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderclaps and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature was like a lion, and the second living creature like a calf. The third living creature like a face, had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures 
Some of our Bibles say beasts. The four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And when those living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him that is seated on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that is seated on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. The book of Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. There are two words in the ecclesiastical world that often are confused. One is the word apocrypha, and the other is the word apocalypse. Apocrypha refers to that group of books between Malachi and Matthew that are in some Bibles, primarily the Catholic Bible. And these apocryphal books are called the Apocrypha because the meaning and the stories and the purpose of those books is hidden and veiled and interwoven with tradition and sometimes with legend and sometimes with things that seem to be like fairy stories. The Hebrews did not accept the Apocrypha as part of the canon. The early Christians in the churches did not accept those books of the Apocrypha as part of the canon. Therefore, when the Reformation came and the people of God went back to the Bible, the Word of God, those Bibles that were published and were used in the churches did not have and did not contain those books that we call the Apocrypha. They are hidden, veiled truths, if they are truths indeed. Now the other word is the word apocalypse or apocalypto. And this word means to unveil, to reveal. And this is the word in the original language that is applied to the last book of the Bible, the unveiling of Jesus Christ the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Many times this book is, is referred to as the apocalypse. In literary history, there is a phrase that is frequently used and anybody that studies literature, whether they believe the Bible or not, frequently run into this phrase, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Why, the apocalypse is the book of Revelation. And the horsemen are those that are revealed in chapter 6, and we'll get to that later. But the apocalypse means the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, notice this particularly about the revelation. The unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, God gave to Jesus, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent 
and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. When you study the Bible, don't be in a hurry. Don't rush through reading the Bible. Take time with the words. Find out what those words refer to, what the words mean. The phrase here, God gave to him. That means God the Father gave to the Son, Jesus, the unveiling, the revelation, which Jesus might show to his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And that phrase, shortly come to pass, does not refer to things that must quickly happen from the point of time when John was given the revelation, but it's an idiomatic phrase which in its original language meant that when these things begin to unravel, these things begin to unveil, and you begin to see these things happening, they will all happen in rapid-fire order, and it will not be long spaces between them. They'll begin to happen quickly. And that phrase is used to refer to that section of Revelation which begins with chapter 4. Now the outline of Revelation is found in chapter 1, verse 19. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. This is a three-point outline, and you cannot improve on the outline the Holy Spirit gave to John. He said, write the things which you have seen. Well, if you study carefully chapter 1, the thing that John saw was the vision of the glorified Jesus. Here's what he saw. In chapter 1, beginning with verse 13, verse 12, I turned to see the voice that, was, that spoke with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girded about the breasts with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brand bronze as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Notice that his head and hair were white like wool, representing divine purity. His eyes were as a flame of fire, representing divine knowledge. His feet were like fine brass, as if they burned in a fire, representing divine judgment upon sin. His voice, the sound of many waters, irresistible divine power. In his right hand, seven stars, symbolizing divine call and empowering of his preachers. And out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword, symbolizing divine judgment and the power of the delivered word. His countenance as the sun shining in glory. This is a vision of the glorified Jesus. Now you remember that at the cross, all the apostles fled except John. None of them were there to see the end. But the scripture explicitly says John stayed to see the end. And what did he see? He saw a visage marred more than any man's visage was ever marred, according to Isaiah 53. He saw the Son of Man with whom he had eaten, with whom he had tarried for three years, 
who had been his teacher, his rabbi, his lord, his master, his savior. He saw the visage of our Lord scarred and marred so that no man could look upon him. He saw those nails driven in his hands. He saw the crown of thorns upon his brow. He saw the to total darkness of the sun as God himself refused to look upon the crucified Savior because Jesus took upon himself our sin. That's what John saw. When John was on the Isle of Patmos for preaching the word of God, God gave to Jesus the vision of the glorified Lord, and he showed it to John. And when John saw it, he was so impressed. Here was the Son of God. Here was the Son of Man. Here was the Son of Righteousness, that same one who had died on a cross for our sins. Now, in all of his resurrected glory, in all of his power, in all of his irresistible divine judgment, the Son of God now is among the churches, and he's a living Savior. He's a living Lord. He's a resurrected Christ. And God wanted our world to see that. Listen, when we go into the cathedrals, when we go into the churches, and we see the images and the crosses and the Christ upon a cross, I guess it's all right to look back at that and thank God for it. But, oh, my friend, that's not where Christ is today. He's not on a cross anymore. The Christ who died on a cross was buried. Three days later, he was raised from the grave, and he's a living, resurrected Savior. And if you want to know what he looks like, there it is, the vision of the glorified Savior. And that's the first point in the book of Revelation. Don't overlook that. Don't overlook that. Mark it well in your Bible. And if sometimes you wonder, what is Jesus like today? Look at the glorified risen Savior. He's alive. He lives. He lives. He lives in my heart. He lives in the churches. And he walks among the churches. Now the second point in Revelation, write the things which are, which you've seen, write the things which are. Now the things which are refer to chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, the church. And as John wrote, that's what was in existence then. Already he was in the church age. Now remember that Jesus established the church himself in Matthew 16. He said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Some people have said the church was established on the day of Pentecost. No, the church was empowered on the day of Pentecost. Jesus himself established his church, but it was commissioned, and it was commissioned by the Lord in Matthew 28. Go ye into all the world, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But the church was empowered at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit who in the Old Testament sat upon people for a specific time and then removed himself who in the New Testament was fully embodied in Jesus 
And Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and the Spirit of God was upon Jesus without measure. But not until Pentecost did the Holy Spirit of God come in immeasurable power in his church upon believers to indwell in us, never to leave, never to forsake. In the Old Testament, the people of God used to say, God is for us. When the Lord Jesus was here, they said, God is with us, Emmanuel. But today, you and I can say, God is in us, in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the church age. And in chapters 2 and 3, we see the unveiling of those churches. There are only seven churches mentioned. That doesn't mean that they're the only churches that were in existence at that time, but rather they are symbolic of all the churches. The number seven is the number for perfection. Over and over again, we meet the number seven in the Scripture. Three is the number for the signature of God or Trinity. Four is the numerical signature of God's creation. And you put three plus four, you equal seven. This is the signature of totality of God's perfection. The revelation abounds in these symbolisms. There are seven letters, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven candlesticks, seven angels, seven stars, seven thunders. In the Old Testament, the seven priests took seven trumpets and marched around Jericho and blew their trumpets seven times on the seventh day, and the walls came tumbling down. Naaman was told to go out and dip in the muddy Jordan River seven times and his flesh came as pure and clean as a little child's. The Bible begins with seven days of creation. And on and on we could go with the sevens of the Scripture. There are seven churches mentioned here. And these seven churches, the church at Ephesus, the church at Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, Smyrna, Philadelphia. These seven churches represented churches with problems and churches with joys. There are two of these churches about whom there is no criticism leveled. The church at Smyrna, the church at Philadelphia. There are some of these churches about whom there is no praise leveled. The church at Sardis, which had a name that it was alive but was really dead. And the church at Laodicea, which was lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. There were other churches like Ephesus that had left its first love. Pergamum was faithful but had false doctrine. Thyatira was increasing in service and yet had immorality in it. And only the church at Philadelphia was the church with the open door. And so in those seven churches we have a picture of the seven symbolic problems the churches face churches in all ages, whether they were in the first century or in this century. Those seven churches represented the churches that existed in the day in which John wrote. And so we're not to think that what we see today are any new problems. Lukewarmness, immorality, having a name that you're alive but you're really dead. Well, that's not something that's just related to the 20th century. This was true in the day in which Jesus was there, in which John wrote this revelation. But also these seven churches represent the seven ages of the church. 
They represent in symbolic fashion that the first age was the age when the church began to leave its first love. The second period of church history was the period of persecution represented by the Smyrna church. The third church represented by Pergamum and then Thyatira and then Sardis, the church that had a name that it was alive and was really dead. This represented a period of church history. And then following that, the church at Philadelphia, which was a open-door church. And in my opinion, that open-door church came with the great missionary movement with William Carey, an early Baptist leader who was the founder of the modern missionary movement. And when William Carey had laid on his heart the call of India and Burma, he said, I must go, I must go to the regions beyond. And he took the glorious gospel. He took the Bible. He went over to that land of darkness and invested his life in translating the word of God into the native languages of the people. And with that, the Bible began to be an open book. And in that Reformation period and in the modern missionary movement, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been declared from an open Bible all around the world. And Jesus said, I've given that church an open door. And I believe the church with the open door is the missionary church, the soul-winning church, the church that has a vision to reach a world in darkness. But just because there's an open door does not mean that there are no obstacles. We saw in that film tonight how Satan and his emissaries work harder on those who are on the way to the celestial city than those who stay behind in the city of destruction. He's already got his crowd. He doesn't worry with them. The ones that he pesters, the ones that he disturbs, the ones that he's trying to constantly pull back, the ones that he tries to confuse their minds are those who are bound for the promised land. And especially those who have an invitation, come and go with me, for I am bound to the promised land. And the devil and all of his emissaries and all of his demons do everything possible to try to drag us back, back, back. Remember the door and the gate. Remember the, the way, the road that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 6 and 7. He said, the road that leads home to heaven is narrow. The road that leads to death and destruction is broad. Many there be that go in there. But that road home is a narrow road. Sometimes we've seen artists paint pictures of the two roads as if we stood at a crossroads and one road narrowly went up to heaven and the other road broadly went down to hell and a man stands here and he has to decide whether he's going that way or this way. There's a sense in which that's true. And every one of us will stand at a crossroads before conversion. And we must determine, as the Holy Spirit tugs at our heart, whether we will go to the celestial city or follow the road to the city of destruction. But in a real sense, those two roads are parallel. We're born on a wide road. And that wide road leads down, down, down to destruction. And we don't have to do anything to get on that road. We're already on it. 
And when we come to the age of accountability, we're on it. We're on our way down. And then we meet Jesus. And Jesus meets us at a narrow gate. And he tells us, tells us about a narrow road. And that narrow road is right in the middle of that broad road. And what we have to do to get on the narrow road is to turn around, to repent. We're on a road that leads to hell. But when we meet Christ and we realize his claims upon us and we realize our exceeding sinfulness and we're willing to turn away from our sin and we see the Christ who died on a cross for our sins and we repent of sin and turn around, then we get on a narrow road that leads home. Don't be surprised if it's narrow. Don't be surprised if it's straight. Don't be surprised if Jesus says, Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, touch not the unclean thing, and I will re receive you. Don't be surprised at that. Don't say, Oh, preacher, you're too narrow. Oh, church, you're too narrow. I want the broad way. If you want the broad way, you're on the way to destruction. On the narrow road, few there be that find it. And the devil is constantly tugging. And the multitude that are on the broad road are constantly scoffing and laughing. You remember Vanity Fair? You remember the city of destruction? When uh, Christiana left the city of destruction, how they scoffed and laughed? That's what they'll do to you. Don't be surprised when that happens. On the road home, you're going to meet some obstacles. Jesus gave us these for an example and for a word. And then he warned us that there's coming a day toward the end of the age when even the church will be lukewarm. Lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And Jesus said, I'll spew it out of my mouth. I can't stand it. And Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? As we approach the end of the age, I believe there's going to be a cleavage. There will be those who love Jesus, those who are the redeemed, those who are the elect, will love God more and more and more and will realize the tugs of Satan and recognize him as such. But there will also be those who were in it for the ride and they'll be getting off board. They'll be stopping the train to get off, to get back on that broad road that leads down. And my friend, don't be surprised if when we get to the end of the age and we come to the, to the, we come to the rapture, don't be surprised if there's enough of the nucleus of the churches to remain through the tribulation. And this brings us to the third point. Write the things which you've seen. Write the things which are. Write the things which shall be. And beginning in chapter 4, in verse 1, after this, what? After what? After those churches. After the church age. After that Laodicean church, Jesus standing at the outside of the door knocking and saying, let me in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. After this, after the church age, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice that I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me which said, come up here and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Hold your finger there and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. <clears throat> but I
For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also who sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Verse 15. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not precede them who are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now look back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice that I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet, a trumpet. In 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump, the trumpet of God. Those two verses describe the same happening. This is the rapture that we've looked forward to. I don't know when it's going to happen, but it could happen tonight. It could happen before the daybreak. It could happen in the dawn of tomorrow. It could happen this next week. I don't know when, but the Word of God says we're to look up, for our redemption draweth nigh. Jesus is coming again. Now, some things will happen when he comes. Number one, the church age will be over. The age of the Holy Spirit will be a thing of the past. There will be a new dispensation, a new way that God deals with the people. Our minds get boggled when we consider this. You consider, for instance, looking back the way God dealt with folks in the Old Testament. Now, anybody that's ever been saved from Adam until the last person is redeemed out of this earth, everyone will be saved by grace through faith. No exception. God doesn't have a different plan of salvation, but he has a different way of revealing it. In the Old Testament, that plan of salvation was revealed in symbols. It was revealed through the blood, the shed blood of that animal, that was, whose life was taken so that Adam and Eve could have clothing to wear in the Garden of Eden after they'd sinned. His plan of salvation was revealed at the Passover when God told Moses to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts so that when the death angel passed through the land that night, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That plan of salvation was symbolized in the tabernacle in the wilderness when God told Moses exactly how to build that tabernacle, how to put a holy place in the middle and a holy of holies veiled with a scarlet veil and inside the holy of holies an ark of the covenant and in the ark of the covenant three things, the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded and a pot of the sample manna taken from the wilderness wanderings and cherubs guarded that ark of the covenant and it was overlaid with golden uh, with a golden table like and that gold was estimated to be worth $60,000 in our marketable value but the value of that Ark of the Covenant lay not in its furniture it lay not in its gold but once a year the priest would go beyond the veil and offer a blood sacrifice for the sins of the people and those who by faith believed the blood and without understanding it perfectly, looked down the corridor of the years and simply believed God's promise that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins.
They believed that, and it was that belief that was counted to them for righteousness, not their works, but their belief, their confidence, their faith. In the New Testament, that plan of salvation was revealed and unveiled in Jesus Christ when he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. The nails in his hands and in his feet, the spear in his side, the crown of thorns on his brow, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of Righteousness, dying for the sins of the world. There was none other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the door of heaven and let us in. Jesus, slain from the foundations of the world, revealed in the fullness of time. And that plan of salvation was all unveiled in Jesus. In Jesus. And he died once and for all. And if you have put your trust and faith in him, he saved you. You're saved. You're God's child. You're redeemed by the blood forever and forever. But there's coming a day when that plan of salvation will be looked back at. And the gospel will go to the world, not through the church. For the church age will end. And when the Son of Righteousness comes, the Son of God comes in the air to receive unto himself those who are his own. He's coming in a day when we think not. He's coming in an hour when we think not. Jesus said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. There will be two grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two in bed. One will be taken, the other left. And so watch and pray, Jesus said, that ye enter not into temptation. Jesus is coming again. And when he comes in the air, these things will happen. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first, according to 1 Thessalonians 4. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. He's not talking about people in bed asleep. He's talking about in the grave asleep, Christians. Those that are in the graves asleep, don't worry about them. They're going to get up first on that great getting up morning. When Jesus comes, those who are dead in Christ, grandmother, grandfather, mom, dad, little boy, little girl, you've gone out to the graveyard and put aside that earthly form that was so dear and precious to you. Maybe some minister stood by the grave and he read a word of comfort. He read a word of scripture. And in your heart, there was faith. My faith looks up to thee, O thou Lamb of Calvary, Savior divine. There was faith. But brother, that faith is going to be exchanged for sight one day. You're going to see. You're going to be there. And the graves, I don't know whether they're going to be open or not. I've often wondered about that. Jesus' grave was open, not so he could get out, but so others could get in and find he wasn't there. Flora Dodson was a precious missionary in China for 40 years. She was here on our platform one night years ago. And I said, Miss Dodson, do you think when Jesus comes, and according to 1 Thessalonians 4, the graves will give up their dead, will the graves be opened? She said, I don't think they will be. She said, I don't think the unbelieving world will ever realize what's happened. She may be right. I've heard others say, yes, I think the graves will be opened. I don't know, but I want to tell you it's not necessary for those graves to be open for the dead in Christ to rise first. Just in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall be raised first. Then 
We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Just suppose he comes tonight. Immediately, in the twinkling of an eye, out there at Fairview Cemetery, out there at Chapel Hill, and out in the country, various places where your dead are buried, who have been sleeping in the graves, dear loved ones whose souls are with Jesus already. Immediately, if there is a fraction of a second difference, they'll get up, and then we will come, and we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. And we shall meet the Lord in the air. And the Scripture says we will never be separated from Him again. I like that. When I used to read that, it said, thus we shall ever be with the Lord. I thought, well, that must be the end of the world. That must be the end of the time, the end of age. No. What that Scripture means is, Right now, you and I are separated from the presence of Jesus physically. We don't see him with our eyes. We see him with our heart. We can't touch him with our hand. We touch him with faith and prayer. But when he comes and we're united with him, the Bible says we'll never, never be separated from him again. We'll be with him forever. It's like, that's where the marriage supper takes place. It's like getting married. Before you're married, when you love your beloved, your betrothed, you love them and you want to be with them. And then when night comes, you have to say goodnight. And you go home and maybe you dream about them and you think about them and you write them letters. And then the next day or a week later or sometime as soon as possible, you get back with them because you love them. And then there comes the day when you're married and you're never separated from them again. There's a union. And that's what happens when the believer joins with Christ, united in his presence, never to be separated from him again forever and forever. Now, friend... Look back at Revelation 4 a minute. And I want to show you what happens. Next Sunday night, we're going to be studying the songs of heaven, the songs of Revelation. What do they sing in heaven? But tonight, I want you to notice these things concerning that throne of God. No matter how dark the day, God is still on the throne. The appearance of Christ in symbolic description, he is referred to as appearing as jasper, which is like diamond, and sardine, which is red, and emerald, which is green. And he is clothed in white with a crimson hue and a rainbow of green. In Revelation 1.14, Jesus is referred to in, his, in that vision as robed in white. In Revelation 3.5, he that overcometh shall be robed in white robes. In Revelation 3.18, Heaven's citizens are clothed in white. In Revelation 4.4, 4, the 24 elders are arrayed in white. In Revelation 6.11, the martyrs are robed in white robes. In Revelation 7.9, the redeemed multitude are arrayed in white. Revelation 7.14, the robes are made white in the blood of the Lamb. In Revelation 19.11, the Lord shall come on a white horse. In Revelation 18.14, the armies of the Lord are clothed in white. White probably suggests the nature of our glorified bodies. Listen to this. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, 
Verse 16, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom the honor and power everlasting. Amen. And in Mark chapter 9, we read about the transfiguration and Jesus was robed in white. In Philippians chapter 3, for our citizenship is in heaven from whence we also look for the glorious appearing, the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it might be fashioned like unto his glorious body. And in 1 John chapter 3, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When Jesus comes, we're going to see him in all of his glory, and we'll be with him forever and forever and forever, never to be separated from him. Are you lonely? Jesus is here with you now, and you don't have to be lonely. He said, I'll be with you. Lonely? No, I'm not lonely, for Jesus is my friend. I feel a peace in knowing my Savior stands between. He stands to guard me from danger when earthly friends are few. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. But just think, when you step into his presence, gone will be all those demons. Gone will be all those downward pulls on your downward base nature. Gone will be all those temptations that have tried to drag you down. Gone will be all the bereavement and the tears and the sorrow and those things that have choked you up and interrupted your walk toward Christ. It'll all be forever gone when you're in his presence. I want to ask you tonight, do you know for sure you're going to Emmanuel's land? Do you know for sure that you're on your way to heaven? Do you know that beyond the shadow of a doubt? When this book says, come up hither, I will show you the things which shall be hereafter. And we begin to see scenes set in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. And then in Revelation 6, we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse as the Antichrist and death and war and famine right across the scene of history. And the earth gets more and more shaken by the terrible tribulation of judgment. And when the seven seals and the seven bowls and the seven trumpet judgments are all unleashed on this world and the earth grows darker and darker and darker. Oh friend, where will you be in that great day? Will you be with the Lord safe forever? Or will you go through that terrible judgment of tribulation which we'll be preaching on in subsequent Sunday nights? You can give your heart and faith to Christ and know that he's your Savior and your Lord. And if you're already saved, you can say, Lord, I want to walk with you in robes of white here so that I'll not be ashamed before you at your coming. Tucked away in the little epistle of 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, there's a verse that sometimes we don't notice. It says, My little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we shall not be ashamed before him at his coming. If Jesus should come tonight, how many of us would be ashamed? Lord, I've gotten my robes all soiled in this world. Lord, I've gotten into this temptation and this trial and this sin. And Lord, I haven't been living like a Christian. And Lord, 
I've let the old base nature get its claws on me and that old temptation that has been clawing at me all my life, I've allowed it to get me and I've succumbed to it and Lord, I'm so ashamed. And Lord, I haven't kept my lips pure. I haven't kept my mind pure. I've been reading things that ought not to read and I'm so ashamed. And Lord, you've been tugging at my heart to do a work for you. And I've been in indecision. I couldn't make up my mind whether that was you calling me or whether it wasn't you. And so I just stayed here and didn't do what your spirit was tugging at my heart to do. Lord, I'm so ashamed. When he shall appear, when he shall appear, let us not be ashamed before him at his coming. How do we avoid that? My little children, abide in him. And Jesus said, if my words abide in you and you abide in me, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done to you. Abiding in Christ means the fullness of the Holy Spirit allowed free sway in our lives through the word, through prayer, and through yieldedness to whatever God leads our heart to do. May we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Our Father, we thank Thee that Jesus is coming again. We thank Thee that one day we will hear that voice come up hither. And oh, what a day it's going to be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. And I take him, and he takes me, and we're together forever. Lord, give us a hunger for that and a thirst and a desire for that. And help us to be done with the downward tugs. I pray that tonight, if there's one person here who is not saved, you'll come to Jesus. And those who are God's children, May there be no unsurrendered will here tonight, but a yieldedness to abide in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand, please? I want to ask tonight, as the Spirit of Jesus speaks to our hearts, that you do his will. You say, what is his will? His will is revealed in the word first will of God is that none should perish but that all should come to repentance. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, then God says you're abiding in disobedience. In the times of this ignorance God winked at but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. I ask you to repent tonight of sin and come to Jesus and trust him as Savior. Number two, are you in his will? What is his will? That you abide in Christ and his words abide in you. So that you can ask what you will and it will be revealed and given to you. Sometimes people have said, Lord, show me your will. God doesn't show him, show us his will so we can consider whether we'll do it. He shows us his will only on the basis of an understanding that we'll do it regardless. You cannot stand back in the shadows and say, Lord, please show me what you want me to do. No, no, it never works like that. What he's looking for is somebody who will say, Lord, here am I. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Reveal it to me. And he'll show you when he understands that you're willing to walk in his word. I've known some people who've said, well, I've wondered whether God's called me to preach. 
There are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people who've never wondered that. Why have you wondered it? Where'd that question mark come from? The devil didn't put it there. What does God want you to do with your life? I want to urge you tonight to yield to Christ. Whatever he wants you to do, say, here am I, Lord, I'll do it. I'm surrendered to you. I don't have the strength to do it myself, but I'll do it as you allow me, as you fill me with yourself. Are you in the will of God? Somebody say, how do you know the will of God? Jesus said in Romans chapter 12, as the Holy Spirit gave us that through Paul, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God wants our body. He doesn't want just our heart. He wants our body. After we're saved, the first thing Christ wants is us. He wants us to be baptized. And you know, I've thought and thought about baptism. Why is it so important? Because it affects the body. It's a humiliating thing. You think it's something, you know, that's a humiliating thing to go up in a, in a water and in front of a bunch of people, allow yourself to be put down in water and brought up out of the water. That's humiliating. That's humbling. And the Word of God says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And when we will not do it, it shows arrogancy and proud, pride on our part. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. And baptism is the first act of obedience in the life of a Christian because if we give our body, after we've given our heart, if we give our body and we say, Lord, if this is what you want, it seems I don't understand why I should go down in water and come up out of the water. But you said to do it, I'm going to do it for Jesus' sake. That's the first act of obedience. And when you do that, God begins to reveal other things to you. But if you do not do that, you're going to wander around for a long time without knowing God's will. I dare you to put all on the altar to Jesus tonight for Christ's sake. While we begin to sing, who will step out first for the King? Do what Christ wants you to do. While we pray, while we sing, will you come yielding your life, your mind, your heart, your will to the will of God? God help you to do it. Thank you.